0: It's almost a cliche, a new year, a new diet. But today's guest says, forget all of that. She's Christy Harrison, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. Her new book, called Anti-Diet, explains why it's not healthy to obsess about what you eat and what works better. Christy's here to tell us about that and how to opt out of the diet culture once and for all. Christy, welcome to Health Now. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've written a lot about what you call the diet culture. Tell us what you mean by that term and how you see that. Sure, yeah.
1: So diet culture is really a system of beliefs and values that um, characterizes Western culture. Pretty much everything um, related to health and wellness and nutrition and food and bodies that we see in Western culture comes from this system of underlying beliefs, which worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, which means that people end up pursuing, you know, all of these different diets, jumping through all these different hoops to try to change the size of their bodies in pursuit of, you know, health, moral virtue, value, and feel that there's something wrong with them because they don't look like the impossibly thin ideal. Diet culture also promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status, both health status and moral status. And so people, again, feel really compelled to spend a huge amount of time, money, energy, um, trying to shrink their body and trying to reshape their body, even though we know from research that intentional weight loss fails 95% of the time. And diet culture demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others, which means that people are hyper vigilant about their eating, guilty about eating certain foods, feel good about themselves for making others, and ultimately just get distracted from the real pleasure and connection and satisfaction that food can bring, as well as, you know, sort of larger Goals and values in life, their pleasure, their purpose, their power in life, because they're spinning their wheels, thinking obsessively about food, planning out what they're gonna eat, and it really takes people away from kind of the bigger, more meaningful things in life.
0: So the title of your book is Anti-Diet. Uh tell us what you mean by that term. It seems obvious, but I just here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness-wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
0: Just want to be sure that we we understand.
1: Sure. Yeah. So by anti-diet, what I really mean is anti-diet culture, anti that system of beliefs that I was just talking about that, you know, worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and demonizes certain foods and ways of eating while elevating others. That system of beliefs is really what I'm against because we know that not only is intentional weight loss um, not sustainable and does it fail more than 95% of the time, but also we see that people's health and well-being is actually put at risk by diet culture. And that comes in a couple different sources of harm. The first one is weight cycling, because with that astronomical failure rate of diets, we know that when people embark on a weight loss effort, they're more likely to lose and regain, lose and regain, lose and regain weight over time, you know, years or decades. And when that happens, it actually puts them at risk of all of these health complications that often get blamed on body weight itself, but are more likely to be explained by weight loss. And in fact, I'm sorry, by weight cycling. And weight cycling is an independent risk factor for things like diabetes, heart disease, certain forms of cancer, mortality. And um, so, you know, when people are are trying to lose weight and end up doing this yo-yo weight cycling, they're actually putting their health at greater risk.
0: And when you you say weight cycling, you mean like you lose 10 pounds, but then you may gain back 15 and then you drop Five pounds, and then you may gain back ten. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So we actually see that, you know, for the vast majority of people, for up to two thirds of people, um, that's what happens. That they they actually gain more weight than they lost in the long run. Um, But for that, you know, third of people or so that doesn't, it might just be losing and regaining the same weight over and over again. But either way, whether or not your weight ends up going higher over time or not, just the act of weight cycling, just the act of losing and regaining weight, seems to put the at risk, you know, through various mechanisms, one of which we know is putting stress on the cardiovascular system. And so people with higher levels of weight cycling, no matter what their body mass index actually have a greater risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality from cardiovascular disease than people who never weight cycled, even if those people were at a much higher weight. So I think it's really interesting, you know, when you look at like what gets blamed on weight itself, right, especially things like heart disease, diabetes, mortality, those things are often said to be caused by higher weight, quote unquote, but really we always we see is an association between higher weights and poor health outcomes on those measures and weight cycling is a likely explanation for why we're seeing that. The other key risk factor and source of harm in diet culture is weight stigma, which we know, again, independent of body mass index puts people at risk for many of these chronic diseases and and health outcomes that, again, get blamed on body size itself. So mortality, diabetes, heart disease, um, and people, who have higher levels of weight stigma again independent of their body size no matter where they fall on the weight spectrum are more likely to have these poor health outcomes than people who have not been stigmatized for their weight
0: and there's the mental health aspect that you mentioned as well not only weight stigma but also people who sort of go back and forth in terms of you know gaining and losing weight i've feel like many times they end up, you know, with a lot of blaming themselves or, you know, thinking that it's just a lack of willpower that's causing them to, to sort of go through these cycles.
1: Absolutely. The self-blame is such a key part of diet culture, too, because the diet industry really makes it out to be that, you know, people should be able to lose weight and keep it off. And if they can't, it's their fault, quote unquote. And we really see that that is not true, that the human body really is not designed to sustain sustain weight loss for any length of time. And so it's pretty inevitable that people are going to regain the weight that they lost. But this culture that we live in has this insidious way of making us blame ourselves for that failure to to sustain intentional weight loss. And so when that happens, it really does put people's mental health in jeopardy as well. And we know that mental health is a huge part of overall health. In fact, it affects our physical health and it affects our overall well-being and sense of satisfaction in life. And so when people are blaming themselves and feeling like failures and maybe also engaging in disordered eating behaviors as well because that is another aspect of diet culture and this, you know, weight cycling that people go through is they often end up engaging in disordered eating behaviors like restriction, binging, compensatory behaviors like bulimia. And, you know, so people can end up with a really messed up relationship with food that further, um, you know, worsens their mental health and their overall well-being.
0: Let's talk about that relationship with food. Uh, One concept that you talk about a lot is something called intuitive eating. Uh, Let's start by describing what that is as well as what it's not.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So intuitive eating, you know, I always say sort of at the fundamental level is the way we're all born knowing how to eat. I often call it the default mode. You know, it's it's our intuitive, innate connections with our hunger, our fullness, our satisfaction cues. And, you know, without the incursion of diet culture or um, sort of negative ideas about how we're, quote unquote, supposed to look. And so when you think about how children eat, right, how babies and small children eat before they're indoctrinated into diet culture we see that they're able to cry when they're hungry they make noise about it they're not ashamed of their hunger they voice it they're able to get their needs met eat until they're full and when they're full they're able to sort of turn their attention away from food it's not that interesting anymore and they go on and do other things they sleep they play whatever until the next time they're hungry and then they come back to you know, making those noises and demanding food. And they also are really attuned to their own satisfaction. The foods that they like, they are, you know, they gravitate towards. The foods that they're not sure about, they might try, but maybe aren't going to go back for again. Um, And they don't really have any time for foods that they don't enjoy. And, you know, that's a really easy, peaceful relationship with food that, in fact, Where we could maintain throughout life if it weren't for the incursion of things like diet culture, but also things like. Food insecurity and medical trauma, and you know other things that happen in people's lives that might take them away from a peaceful relationship with food. So the style of intuitive eating I practice as a dietitian, as an intuitive eating counselor, is to help people reconnect with that innate way of relating to food in their bodies, and help them strip away all the diet culture beliefs that get in the way of that. Maybe also heal from any um, you know disordered eating or trauma that's happened to them around food, like. Uh, food insecurity in childhood or medical issues that have made them fearful of certain foods. And so helping people recover from that in order to reclaim that peaceful relationship with food that's really their birthright and all of our birthright.
0: So is intuitive eating the same thing as following your cravings? Um, You know, I can obviously think of some food cravings that I have that I certainly need to try to keep in check. Um, you know, I know that it's not healthy to eat, you know, pizza or nachos for every meal of every single day. What I know about nutrition, you know, you need a certain amount of vegetables and fruits and, and whole grains and things like that. How do you reconcile those sorts of cravings or urges that people might have with, you know, um, I guess, what we know about nutrition that you need uh, to be healthy?
1: Yeah, it's a delicate balance, I would say. And so with intuitive eating, there are 10 principles, I sort of outline them in my book. But you know, most of the principles are getting you back in touch with your cues, and helping you honor cravings, make peace with food so that you're not um, putting any foods off limits or restricting yourself of any particular types of food, including pizza, including cookies, including all the foods that we're told are quote unquote unhealthy. Um, and actually when people make peace with food and give themselves unconditional permission to eat those foods, they find that ultimately they're not going to want to eat them for every meal of every day, right? Oftentimes people will go through what I call a honeymoon phase with those foods that were previously off limits where they end up, you know, only wanting those foods for a while. And they're like, oh really, I can have this. Well, let me have it again. And <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a a bit of a you know free for all. It feels kind of scary too when that's happening. But I promise people and I, I reassure anyone listening that, you know, it's not gonna last forever. That in fact if you are tuning into like your pleasure and your satisfaction when you're going through this honeymoon phase, you will ultimately find that the pleasure and satisfaction of eating those foods that were previously off limits will kind of wane after a certain point, And you actually will eventually want something different. And oftentimes that surprises people. And they're like, wow, I thought I would never have, you know, it would never end this, this desire for pizza. And in fact, I woke up today and just really wanted like, you know, fruit or I for lunch, I was suddenly craving a big salad or something. So it really does happen over time. You know, we know that the forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest. We actually see this borne out in the literature around cravings that when people are deprived of a particular food, they end up having higher cravings for that food, Um, even if it's only a week, even if it's like, you know, people are told in an experiment, you can't have chocolate for a week. Um, it, You know, their their reported cravings for chocolatey foods are much higher, significantly higher at the end, and that is actually even higher in people who are already dieters. So people who are dieters going in and then are told to, that they can't have chocolate for a week, their cravings for chocolate are really intense by the end of that week that they're deprived of it, and they're much more likely to, to go for it again and again. The people who aren't dieters still report increased cravings, you know, at the end of a week without chocolate, but it's much more... Um, subtle and sort of manageable. And so we see this in people who've been immersed in diet culture and dieting for a long time is that they will have these off limits foods in their minds, and they'll have intense cravings for them at first, but eventually those cravings will wane. And then we can bring in what's called gentle nutrition. That's actually the 10th and last principle of intuitive eating. And we put it as the last, you know, the founders of intuitive eating, I should say, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, who came up with this framework in 1995. So this is not new. Um, You know, they created um, these 10 principles and put gentle nutrition as the last principle for a reason, really because... When you're in diet culture and you're trying to recover from all this toxic noise about food and nutrition that you've picked up along the way, often contradictory claims about nutrition and, you know, dieting behaviors that you're trying to reconcile in your mind and getting more and more confused, it's really important to strip all of that away and help people heal from those diet culture messages and ways of thinking so that they can get back to their hunger cues, their fullness cues, having pleasure in eating, accepting their bodies, um, you know, really rooting out the, the poisonous diet culture beliefs that can harm their relationship with food. And that has to happen first before we can start to come back to nutrition from a place of, as I say, self-care, not self-control. So really thinking about nutrition as a form of self-care rather than as, oh, I need to like do it by the book as this guru has told me. And, you know, I'm, I'm bad if I break these nutrition rules and I'm good if I adhere to them, you know, all of that diet culture thinking, it just really has no place in a peaceful relationship with food. So nutrition is certainly a part of it, but I think Actually making peace with cravings and honoring cravings has to come first and is sort of a bigger part of the puzzle. And nutrition ultimately tends to fall into place once these other diet, you know, once the diet culture beliefs have been addressed and dismantled.
0: You mentioned the peaceful relationship with food or or trying to develop that. A lot of people have difficult relationships with eating and also with their bodies and how they they view themselves. What are some ways That your approach helps support recovery from those difficult relationships. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: Yeah, I think it's you know intuitive eating and also health at every size, which is sort of the um, umbrella philosophy that includes not just nutrition but also exercise, health care, other practices to support well-being. Um, I think that it's such a, a breath of fresh air and you know a way of liberating yourself from uh, the confines of diet culture and of toxic relationships with food and difficult relationships with food. You know, I see people really. Um, be surprised when they start to get permission to eat and, and really start to feel and trust that they have that and that they don't have to worry about their weight or micromanage their eating, that the fat phobia and food phobia that are inherent in diet culture really have no place in a, in a healthy relationship with food and your body. I think people are very um, liberated by that and it gives them a sense of a possibility in their life, a sense of openness and freedom when they ultimately are able to work through those diet culture thoughts and get to the other side. Because really what you know food is meant to be is is fuel, is connection, is something to support us in our lives and bring us pleasure and bring us nourishment and help us ultimately do the things we want to do in our lives. It's not meant to be the be all end all of life or of health. And just describe
0: what you mean by health at every size.
1: Yeah, so health at every size is a, a philosophy of healthcare that is weight inclusive and anti-diet. And health at every size is design <clears throat> excuse me, health at every size is designed to help you take care of your body without trying to shrink it. So it really offers a holistic approach to health and well-being that is about self-care, not self-control. Um, And it helps people of all shapes and sizes to feel more at peace with their bodies and feel a sense of agency to take care of their bodies without this external pressure to lose weight or be thin. And really, that's what we all deserve. We all deserve to have a peaceful relationship with our bodies and a way way of approaching health that is um, not based on sort of external rules, but more based on what actually feels good to us and what we truly want in our lives.
0: Say someone goes to their doctor, their doctor diagnoses them with a condition like high blood pressure or arthritis, and it's clear that they, they need to lose some weight for those health reasons. What do you see as an affirming healthy way, both physically and psychologically, to do that when it's clear that you know, weight is something that is actually affecting your health?
1: So I would actually challenge that premise. I think that premise is coming from diet culture, because again, what we know from the research is there's this correlation, right, between higher weights and poorer health outcomes, things like high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, heart, other heart disease risk factors and stuff like that. Um, you know, we see this correlation. What we don't see is any long-term, safe, sustainable solution to those outcomes or to changing those um you know, those health conditions um, through weight loss. We we know that weight loss just is not an effective long-term solution, and it actually carries greater risks by promoting weight cycling. And we know that weight cycling puts people at greater heart disease risk, and it might actually explain all of the excess heart disease risk that we see in people in larger bodies, right? So, you know, what we really need to do, I think, is focus on other evidence-based treatments for those conditions, because we know that, thing, that people in smaller bodies get those, health conditions too, right? People in smaller bodies have high blood pressure. People in smaller bodies have diabetes. People in smaller bodies have, you know, bad knees and plantar fasciitis and other conditions that get blamed on weight from this sort of mechanical perspective, right? All of these conditions have evidence-based treatments that don't have anything to do with weight. And, you know, even if losing weight was a factor in say those mechanical conditions, right? Maybe there was a small way in which losing weight could help take, you know, ease pressure on joints, for example. We still don't have any known way of helping people safely and sustainably lose weight. And in fact, the prescription for weight loss is much more likely to result in greater health risks. And so really, we need to take the prescription for weight loss off the table, in my view, and instead work on all the other evidence-based treatments that we can give people. And so that's what the health at every size philosophy is about, and we actually see really good health outcomes in the research that's been done on that. People who engage in health at every size, um, you know, uh, programs are actually more likely to have favorable blood pressure levels, um, blood lipid levels, lower cardiovascular risk, um, greater levels of physical activity, um, greater overall, you know mood and mental health and well-being and those benefits are sustained long-term because they're not you know People aren't on and off a health at every size program the way they're they are on and off weight loss programs and cycling through You know yo-yoing their weight and also going back and forth in terms of the behaviors they are actually engaging in Because so I think one of the problems with the prescription for weight loss is that people will start doing behaviors that maybe are health-promoting on their own, say, moving their body, engaging in some sort of, you know, physical activity. That in and of itself, regardless of weight, has been shown to be beneficial for health. It's been shown to reduce health risks.
0: I think a lot of doctors certainly wouldn't encourage these very extreme diets or, you know, things that are super hard to follow in order for someone to lose weight. A lot of the advice that the doctors do give is to, you know, just sort of, Follow the basic principles of what's considered a healthy diet, right? Like the fruits and vegetables, the lean protein, those kinds of things, and making sure you're not getting too hungry so you, you know, avoid overeating because you do. Is that an approach that you think also is feeding into the diet culture in some way? Do you think that that's just its own version of a a different diet? Or is there some value in that approach to eating?
1: I think oftentimes it is still feeding into diet culture. Basically, people who are engaging in flexible dietary control are always at risk of sliding along that pole into the more rigid side of dietary control and often do, especially when someone has been dieting for a long time and they have a lot of internalized weight stigma um, or they're really susceptible and and sort of, you know, someone who takes things to the extreme. Um, That kind of advice from doctors, even the seemingly sort of flexible advice Um, Tends to get translated into really rigid sense of control over your body and over your food Versus intuitive eating the research has actually shown that intuitive eating is a distinct concept That's not on that continuum of flexible to rigid dietary control But that's completely on a different plane on a totally different continuum and so intuitive eating really is not about control flexible or rigid It's about integrating inner attunement with outer awareness And, you know, the outer awareness might include at some point down the line things like, yeah, fruits and vegetables are health-promoting, and maybe I want to add some more of those to my menu. But it's done in a very different way with a very different mindset than that flexible versus rigid dietary controls.
0: Are you concerned that intuitive eating could become yet another, you know, fall into the same category as those other types of diets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we see that a lot with people who jump into intuitive eating straight from diet culture without sort of doing the the work of unlearning the diet mentality which is actually the first principle of intuitive eating um, you know people do kind of, kind of turn intuitive eating into another diet it's what a colleague of mine named Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet you know it's only eat when you're hungry and you must stop when you're full and that's the way you're going to be quote unquote healthy and lose weight you know and so that is just turning intuitive eating into another diet and that's really antithetical to the true spirit of intuitive eating that's not what it's really about. Um, similarly, I think that, you know, keto and Whole30 and things like that are really, you know, intermittent fasting um, are really at odds with intuitive eating because they are these outside sort of impositions on how you eat and move your body you don't have autonomy or agency you're following a plan you're following a set of rules it's not about listening to your body and being truly intuitive with what you want what you desire how hungry you are what's going to satisfy you and thinking about sort of gentle nutrition principles like that is not what those diets are about they're very rigid they're very prescriptive they don't really have that that flexibility to be um you know compatible with intuitive eating and especially at a, you know just sort of a fundamental level they come from diet culture they come from the system of beliefs that is demonizing some foods and elevating others um, equating, you know, thin bodies to higher health and moral status, and so they're just not going to be able to be embarked upon intuitively. The one exception I, I find in the examples that you gave is veganism. I think that's a really tricky one because a lot of people do engage in it like a diet. They right. treat it as, you know, a way to to sort of pursue this mythical ideal of health and also to pursue thinness. And from that perspective, it's just as ineffective and harmful to your relationship with food as any other diet. There are those people, though, who pursue veganism as a form of ethics, you know, for animal rights reasons and environmental reasons. And I think that that's tricky to do in diet culture because people tend to, you know, conflate those ethical reasons with diet culture reasons as well. But I have seen people who are able to pursue it just for the ethical reasons without turning it into a diet. So I don't want to say across the board that veganism can't be compatible with intuitive eating or a healthy relationship with food. I know that it is for some people. I think it's just very difficult and takes a lot of practice and dedication to try to to try to get to that place where it is intuitive.
0: And obviously, we're in the time of year, the new year, when weight loss is a primary goal for a lot of people uh, making resolutions. Planning to, you know, totally change their diet, totally change their approach to exercise, those kinds of things. What is your take on some common tools like calorie tracking apps or calorie counting in general to accomplish goals like that? One of our coworkers actually shared that when she's done this, she's become obsessed with every little thing she ate. Mm -hmm. Would you toss all of that out or all these tools helpful if you use them in a certain way?
1: Yeah, I would toss all of that out because it is a product of diet culture. Counting calories actually, you know, came out of this very early diet culture in the 1800s that was starting, you know, it was, it was based on fat phobia and um, fears about body size. And so it has these really insidious roots and like you said, you know, with your coworker, like a lot of people do experience that where they become obsessed with everything they're putting in their mouth with every tracking every step and making sure everything is accounted for. And that's really no way to live. It really does take us away from that easy, intuitive relationship with food in our bodies that we're born with and that we all deserve to have.
0: If there were one piece of advice that you could give to someone who's trying to think about Starting a diet or uh, reforming that that aspect of their life, what would you tell them uh, to keep in mind as they think about that decision?
1: Yeah, I would say that you know, first and foremost, maybe to reflect on what have you done in the past that hasn't worked or that has gotten you to a place in your relationship with food where you are considering another diet, and why do you think this new diet is going to be any different? You know, what do you think um, you're looking for out of it, and is there can you open up to maybe trying another way? You know, tr- giving giving intuitive eating a shot, giving a shot to letting go of the pursuit of weight loss, letting go of the pursuit of quote unquote perfect eating. I know that's hard, especially in this culture for people in larger bodies who are told left and right that they need to lose weight, who are shamed by their doctors and, you know, people walking down the street and their own families. Um, and so, you know, weight stigma is a very real thing and I very much understand the desire to escape it. And, you know, has your pursuit of thinness, your efforts at dieting, have those led to sustained weight loss? Have they led to sustained health or well-being, which is not the same thing as weight loss? Um, Have they led to sustained, like, happiness and ability to just be chill around food? Or have you found your relationship with food to be really tumultuous and anything but relaxed? And, you know, have you found that you're just on and off diets and nothing seems to stick? in which case, you know, that's a sign that diet culture is not working for you. So I, th- I would say just consider all of that. Consider your own history with dieting and your relationship with food and see if it might be time to open up to something different.
0: It sounds like the approach of intuitive eating is shifting the mindset about how you think about food in terms of a, a punitive mindset, like don't eat this, don't eat that, to a more positive Way of thinking about it in terms of what how do you enjoy eating what is what are some of the pleasurable ways um you know what is some of the pleasure you get from food
1: yeah it's really interesting because i think when people spend a long time in diet culture the way that we basically all have growing up in western society it can take a long time to get to a place of considering pleasure even in your day-to-day food choices and so One of the first things that I say to people that I recommend when we're approaching this question of pleasure is just to think about like when you're sitting down to a meal or when you're shopping for groceries, what is the first thing that comes into your mind like, ooh, that would be that would be good. That would be delicious. Trying to notice those first thoughts. And sometimes it might not even be a fully formed idea of a food, but more like I want something warm or I want something rich or I want something comforting. You know, and then you can sort of narrow down from there. You can ask yourself questions like, okay, if I want something warm, you know, would some soup be something, would, would I enjoy soup right now? Do I want some more of a stew, like a hearty kind of one pot meal? You know, what you can zero in kind of on what flavors you're interested in at the moment, um, what textures you might be looking for. And so just asking yourself these questions can be so incredibly liberating. And often I've found with clients that I've worked with, kind of emotional, like asking yourself what you really want to eat is something that feels very foreign and very, it brings up a lot of, I think, feelings for people around, do I deserve this? Do I, am I allowed to have pleasure? What does it mean to prioritize my pleasure to eat the things that I really want to eat? So I think pleasure is actually, you know, really central to intuitive eating and really the heart of a lot of this mindset work is just starting to ask yourself the question about what do I really want? And what would it take to make it feel okay to allow myself to have what I really want?
0: All right. Some advice for all of us to keep in mind uh, this time of year. Christy Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate uh, you sharing all these insights with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.